questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight we're diving deep into the world of ancestral nutrition with our special guest and New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Katherine Shanahan, popularly known as Dr. Kate. She will guide us through the wisdom of traditional foods that have fueled our ancestors and the elite, offering insights into optimal health and longevity. Dr. Kate has spent her career decoding the secrets of nutrition, demonstrating how ancestral, nutrient-dense foods can be key to vibrant health. Our conversation will unravel how our dietary choices can profoundly impact our genetic potential, mirroring the diets that have kept our ancestors robust through centuries. We'll also journey into the intriguing dietary habits of the elite, known for their focus on nutrient-packed foods, contributing to their renowned vitality and longevity. Conversely, we'll discuss prevalent pitfalls in modern diets, such as the ubiquity of processed foods and harmful vegetable oils, and their impact on our health. Through this enlightening conversation with Dr. Kate, we're poised to reevaluate our food choices, embrace the dietary wisdom of our ancestors, and inspire healthier living for ourselves and our families. So, prepare for a captivating voyage into ancestral nutrition with Dr. Kate. Welcome to Eating Like Our Ancestors, unlocking the secret menu to optimal health and longevity with traditional foods your DNA craves. Welcome to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To access tonight's full interview and all of our exclusive material, simply join the Veritas Plus family by clicking on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Veritas store for a range of great products, including Focused Life Force Energy. Experience the power of FLFE with a 15-day free trial today. No credit card required. We're excited to announce the launch of our brand new Veritas Plus Insider, your source for exclusive news and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you're looking to get in touch with Mel, have a guest suggestion, or would like to provide feedback, simply click on the contact button on our website. So sit back, relax, and enjoy tonight's show. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. And her latest book is titled Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Neat Traditional Food. And her website is drkate.com. And directly from Central Florida, I'd like to welcome Dr. Catherine Shanahan. Hello, Dr. Kate, and welcome. How are you? Hi, I'm doing really great. I'm excited to be on this conversation with you today. My pleasure. And Dr. Kate, it's wonderful to really finally meet you, especially after reading the book. Your innovative approach to nutrition has profoundly impacted how you perceive diet and health. And I've been studying this for decades. But after reading your book, I can say with certainty that every bite I take is a more conscious one. What do you say about that? Well, that's a fantastic way of putting it. And, you know, one of the things that I like to focus on is about the joy of uh, the good food that you get to eat. Once you understand what, you know, really a human diet looks like and what real nutrition looks and tastes like and what it can do for you. And that is truly the perfect way of putting it. It's, it does make you more conscious about what you're doing and where your food came from. Uh, those are all those are all connected to your health, like exactly how your animals, the animals that you eat and the plants that you eat 
how they were raised that has such a big impact on your health that it goes all the way down to the level of your DNA inside every single one of your cells. I'd say close to 99% of the guests I've interviewed who have a book on health have written it because they've had their own journey. They've had their own health issues. They have conquered them and now want to share the information with the world. Who is Dr. Caden? And I know you have an interesting story to share with us that put you where you are. Take us back in time where all began. Yeah, so I um, am a medical physician, medical doctor. I'm a family practice doctor. And I went to medical school because I wanted to get to the root cause of problems that I had had as a college athlete with recurring shin splints and tendonitis and joint problems. And I I was uh, hoping that in medical school, I could learn why I had these problems when other people on the team didn't. Like, what was it about me? There had to be something wrong. And, uh, you know, you go to medical school with these different dreams and visions, and the reality isn't always the same as your dream and vision. Didn't quite turn out. So by the time I had graduated and gone to residency and everything was practicing, I'd given up on this idea of understanding the root cause of my condition, but not just my own condition. I also really wasn't able to dig as deep into the root causes of my patients' conditions as, I, as I'd as i hoped, so that most of the people I was seeing, I didn't understand what was wrong with them. Um, but all of that changed one day when I went on a walk and I came back like unable to understand what was going on with my knee. I had this intense pain in my right knee and, and it just was like nothing I'd ever had before. And it was very disabling. I couldn't actually couldn't walk. So it definitely got my attention. And uh, what happened was, you know, I went through the typical medical uh, diagnostic routine and there was no answer. So I was a medical mystery. And, and this is where I got into nutrition because I was, you know, basically sobbing on the couch. I couldn't walk. I wasn't sure if I was even going to be able to work. And my husband plopped this book on my lap called Spontaneous Healing and said, you know, your diet is kind of like an insect. You know how much sugar you eat? That can't be good for you. Read this book. You'll probably learn something. <laughs> he might have put it nicer than that. Um but um, so in the book, I learned about essential fatty acids. So the book was called Spontaneous Healing. And it was by this uh, doctor named Andrew Weil, who maybe some people in your audience have heard of if they've been around as long as I have. He's in um, my town. <laughs> he's right oh, here in right. town. Of course. Right. So, yeah, he's out of Arizona. And um and I had actually met him when he was there because that's where I went to my residency training. So it was kind of like closing a little loop for me. But the book, uh, Dr. Andrew Weil is about, um, the he's really the father of kind of the supplement movement, you know, so father of the idea that there's superfoods out there and we can really boost our uh, health by accessing some of these superfoods. So that sounded like a great thing to me at the time, since I had nothing, no other options. Um, and uh, I didn't cut out the sugar yet though, but um, I, so I read the book and in that book, I came across a term that I'd never heard of in my medical school. And it was sounded really important. It was the term essential fatty acids. And 
the that was referring to like things that we've all heard of now, like fish oil, which is an omega three fatty acid, essential omega three fatty acid, meaning you need to have it in your diet because your body can't make it and it's good for you. And so these essential fatty acids were something that I hadn't heard about. So I was naturally curious. And they also sounded like chemistry things. And before I went to medical school, I was a biochemistry student in the Cornell University's PhD program. So I loved biochemistry. So I was like, oh, this could be really interesting just learning about it. But also I was hoping that uh, these oils that he was talking about in there, including some of the vegetable oils, could help me right? Because these essential fatty acids that they have, I thought they were going to be really good for you. But after I did a little bit of like diving into the chemistry of these things, I actually became extremely concerned that maybe I was, maybe they were the thing that was making me sick. So in other words, like I kind of went, did a 180 on these essential fatty acids thinking maybe I needed to eat more vegetable oils and they could help me. And besides, like when I started looking into them, I was like, oh, they say they're heart healthy. They're supposed to be good for you. I didn't really learn much about that. Um, but then when I got into the biochemistry, how they're processed and some more of the details about how they might affect our body, I realized these things could actually be extremely pro-inflammatory and they could really be messing up my immune system and just making me sick and feel bad. Um so that was kind of the beginning of my new renewed interest in, well, renewed hope really, that I could get to the bottom of what was wrong with me this time. <laughs> and, and it turned out to be true. It turned out that that really had a lot to do with what was wrong, not just with me and my health, but my patients. Too, and that a lot of their problems were coming from the the dual, like two pronged disaster that our modern diet delivers to our bodies. One is the vegetable oils, and the other disaster is that it's so bereft of nutrients. Um, and these two things gang up against us. They literally kind of attack our cells at where, so we're being like assaulted by our diet at the cellular, at the cellular level. And when I wanted to write deep nutrition, I wanted to get both of these concepts across about the importance of really nourishing our bodies as well as not eating toxic things like vegetable oils and too much sugar. So there's a, there's a lot that I just covered right there, but um, I did try to pack it all in the book, Deep Nutrition. So um, that's why I call it Deep Nutrition. It's really a deep dive into a lot of stuff that like we're going to be talking about here for the next couple of hours. But honestly, I know two hours is a long format, but that's really just the beginning of what I've learned and what I talk about, um, you know, as I try to educate the public on what a healthy diet is and what's really toxic in our food supply. What's the most toxic thing, the winner of the toxic contest. And by the way, you had shin splints, something that I'd love to know how you solved that if you did, because I've had that on my left leg for 
forever. You were an athlete. I, I used to run. And that's something that I, that is one of those things that I haven't been able to conquer. Have you been able to? Yeah. So shin splints, it turns out, are a connective tissue problem. And so let's talk about what is connective tissue so we can understand this. Um, so because there, the answer is yes, I was able to greatly reduce all of the connective tissue problems I had, uh, but not a hundred percent because there's, there's two prongs to this too. So, um, so let's talk about what is connective tissue so we can make sense of this. So, um, connective tissue is the stuff that literally holds our cells together. If we don't have any connective tissue, if like we zapped out all the connective tissue, which is mostly made out of collagen, which is, uh, by the way, something probably you've had people on talking about collagen supplements. Sure. So connective tissue is made out of collagen. If we got rid of all of that, we would just disintegrate into a puddle of individual disconnected cells. So it's extremely important, this stuff, this connective tissue that's made mostly out of collagen. And the more familiar form of this is ligaments and tendons and um, fascia. Fascia, yes, fascia, because shin splints um, actually are a form of fascia. So ligaments and tendons are more familiar to people. That's kind of what like holds your bones and joints together. So what's this fat fascia stuff or fascia or fascia? People say it different. Um, it's all the same thing. It refers to these broader bands of tissues that hold like long, flat muscles either together or onto your bones. So shin splints are caused by inflammation or deterioration of the fascia that holds the muscles uh, that are connected to your shin onto your shin all the way up and down your shin. So it's quite a long stretch of tissue. And people who have shin splints have pain usually on the front of their shin, right on the inner edge there or the, the inner edge or the outer edge where the um, muscles that raise up your toes, the muscles of your um, your lower leg that raise up your toes connect there. And anywhere along there, you can have pain when you have shin splints. So it's brought on by, you know, running and stuff, as I'm sure you're familiar with. But it's, these are these conditions that like shin splints and tendonitis and arthritis, by the way, the common form of arthritis that's called degenerative joint disease, that's actually starts in the connective tissue before the bones, or at least as much as the bones. It's all about the connective tissue because the cartilage in your bones deteriorates too, and that's connective tissue. So the things that help you um, avoid uh, there, so the two-pronged approach to keeping your connective tissue healthy, let's put it that way, maybe. Uh, the two-pronged approach is one, um, eat nourishing foods that support your, uh, your connective tissue health. And the biggest thing there is bone broth. And so it, it so bone broth is what I call, um, one of the four pillars of the human diet, because it turns out that all cultures all around the world consume bone broth, which is made by boiling bones or chicken feet, or just like saving a turkey carcass after um, after dinner, or uh, saving like your rotisserie chicken, saving those bones, making use of the bones and the joint material and even the skin of the animals. And it creates this gelatinous broth that is 
unlike anything else in our food supply. It's not protein, it's not carb, it's a complex brew of uh, nutrients that specifically benefit this connective tissue and help keep our joints healthy. It helps keep our connective tissue, our ligaments healthy. It even helps our skin and our hair and um, our arteries because all of this stuff is made out of connective tissue. So it's really an amazing thing. So that's that's one of the big tips that uh, that I give people when I you know consult with them even. <laughs> now in the introduction of your book, and by the way, thank you for that. In the introduction of your book, you said something that I've noticed for decades when going to a doctor's office, a real discussion about healthy eating cannot take place in a doctor's office. All they say is eat your collars or everything in moderation, but they are not specific. And I understand with insurance, paperwork to fill out and all the red tape required that that's why doctors give an average of seven minutes to each patient. Can you address this first? Yeah. So it is the insurance limitation that, um, you know, if we don't see a certain number of patients, um, we simply are going to get sat down with our boss and, you know, told we got to work faster. So it's not that doctors aren't interested in talking to you about it. It's, it's that they're in a rush and they don't know that much um, because we do not really take deep dives into nutrition science in, in medical school. Um, and this isn't a problem of just medical doctors, though. This, this is true also about dietitians. And, and you know, so I'm saying that dietitians don't learn very much about nutrition either, which is quite a thing to say. Um, but I, I want to talk about that uh, because everyone assumes that dietitians are like, <laughs> you know, the trusted source, right? They've learned the latest up to date. But the the reality is that they learn the same kinds of things about nutrition that doctors do, which is unfortunately uh, not correct. <laughs> and this is why um, this is why like deep nutrition makes people feel when you read the book Deep Nutrition, you kind of feel like you've gone down a real, real live rabbit hole, real Alice in Wonderland, like you're on the other side of the looking glass stuff because everything you hear in the doctor's office or the dietitian's office about nutrition is backwards. It, you know, you hear that fat makes you fat. You hear that cholesterol clogs your arteries and you hear that salt is unhealthy and raises your blood pressure. <laughs> None of that is actually true. And none of that is based in real nutrition science. It's all kind of evolved out of these uh, this distorted relationship between the American Heart Association and vegetable oil industry that I discovered had uh, had been formed in the 1940s. Okay, so so that I just kind of feel like I went already sort of went halfway down the rabbit hole. So so take me back out and where? No 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 no. I, I love it. I love it that you're going deeper. Uh, how many hours, Doctor Kate, of nutrition fundamentals are, are required in medical school? Just to remind the the listeners. Yeah, so there's actually zero hours required. Um, although uh, although we do learn just about everything that dietitians learn. It's just that, you know, they learn a lot of like what your body does with the food that you eat 
that's that's called like physiology or cell physiology. Um, they learn that we learn that, right? Um, they learn about you know cholesterol supposedly clogging your arteries. They learn that we learn that. There's nothing that they learn that we don't learn. <laughs> and what I learned, the funny part about, I actually had a nutrition class, and what I learned in my nutrition class was very little about nutrition. It was about statistics. It was about how uh, like to read nutrition studies, which are mostly epidemiology, which has nothing to do with nourishment. It's just how to interpret huge studies that are done on the population that ask questions like, you know, does broccoli give you cancer, right? So like random questions like that. So you need to know a lot about statistics. So that was what my nutrition course was mostly about. And, you know, it's a little bit here about and there about like calories and how to use different calculators, which are all online. So the top notch, most well-educated person in nutrition science now doesn't actually know anything more than doctors than doctors learn, even though we don't, we famously don't learn very much about nutrition. Can you believe that? I mean, that is, that I think is a really important point because really dietitians and nutritionists are learning mostly just how to count calories, how to count, you know, grams of protein and grams of carbs and special diets for people with rare genetic disorders or rare conditions, right? Like that's, that's what they kind of specialize in how, you know, the, the rare conditions and exactly the nitty gritty of these macronutrients, but macronutrients and calories are not nutrition. So they don't really learn how to nourish a human body. And they certainly don't learn any better than doctors because we all learn those same, those same talking points, the same, uh, I call them talking points because they're really just, that's what they are. They're, they're not like nutrition facts at all. Fat doesn't make you fat. Cholesterol doesn't clog your arteries and salt doesn't give you any kind of kidney problems or heart disease or strokes. Um, it, it's, but those are the talking points. And that's basically all of nutrition science. There's not a whole lot more to it than that. In the introduction, you also say the book describes the diet to end all diet. And when, when people think of the word diet, they think of hard work. They think of something temporary to get from A to Z usually to lose weight, but instead of a diet, shouldn't it be a lifestyle? Yes, it should be something that gives us joy. We, we shouldn't be eating like what we think is healthy for a short time period just to get the number down on the scale and then go back to doing the food that we really like, right? That's a recipe for yo-yo dieting, really. Um, and And really, that's just that mindset, which is you know, I see that all the time. That's what everybody has. We've been forced into that mindset by the idea that fat makes you fat, salt gives you hypertension and cholesterol clogs your arteries because the tastiest foods are full of those three things. There's what's better than bacon. <laughs> It's got all of the above, you know, and, um, and actually bacon is potentially very nutritious. And so is bacon and eggs, right? So is a steak. Uh, and so it, it's not just about having these kind of bland and lot, not very flavorful foods. 
or just it's all got to be fruits and vegetables, right? Like that's the only thing that we are allowed to have that has any flavor. But vegetables don't really have a lot of flavor these days. So mostly that's fruit and fruits are mostly sugar. So if you follow the dietitian's diet, you're going to end up eating mostly, you know, a lot of fruits. That's going to be the healthiest thing that you're going to be getting. That's going to be where most of your natural flavors really come from, which really is mostly sugar. And you're going to end up craving junk food. You're going to be ending, end up like being just like pushed to the, the golden arches and because that's the only place you can really get the satisfaction of the the salty, fatty, cholesterol, sometimes cholesterol, although they don't have a lot of cholesterol there anymore, uh, cholesterol rich, like um, satisfying foods that we really crave um, at a primal level, because these these foods are the foods that made us human. So it is a primal desire, and it's not a a desire we should push down while we're on a diet. It's it's a desire that we um, we want to fulfill while we're on a diet, and that's what deep nutrition helps people do. That's what the con the whole concept and philosophy of deep nutrition is: aligning your diet with the nutrition that you genetically need. That we we as humans all genetically need. I don't mean like different people from like say one part of the world you know, different races, they don't need different nutrition. We all need the same nutrition. It's just that it's going to look a little different depending on where it grew. In the book, you include a few, this is really interesting. You include a few photos or, or paintings of famous people, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Geronimo, Nikola Tesla, and many more, including Genghis Khan. You say, what do the toughest men in history all have in common? They all ate the same foods. Please tell us more. So these are the, what did I say? What they all had in common in the same foods was this is getting us to the four pillars of a human diet, which is the centerpiece of my nutrition philosophy that I call deep nutrition. Um, and the four pillars of the human diet are the four nutrition strategies that all healthy human cultures around the world share in common. And the idea, you know, before I discovered those four things in common, um, I, I just had the idea of like, okay, well, is, what is really a healthy diet? Like, how do we, how do we even define that? And my thought process was, if there's something that every healthy human culture is doing, Gosh darn it, that's probably something we should all know about. That's probably really important. That's probably got to do with how humanity survived to the present day to to like not just survive, but you know, thrive and basically take over the globe. Um, so these four strategies that I call the four pillars of the human diet are nutritional strategies that all the healthiest people around the world ate in common. And so, yes, like Genghis Khan, he was from a traditional culture for sure. Um, he was part of possibly the Yamnaya people. I don't know if you've ever talked about them. No. But, um, oh, they're kind of cool because they're sort of like um, they uh, they dominated um European history for about maybe 5,000 years. They, they're, they're the source of the 
the destruction of the fall of Rome and the destruction of a lot of European culture, they're a hunter-gatherer tribe. And so they too ate the four pillars of world cuisine. So let's just talk about what those four pillars are. So we can kind of start to think about this in like concrete, real, what does this look like as we're sitting down to eat? So one of the pillars is just fresh food, right? Your fruits and your vegetables, of course, but also fresh fish like sushi, um, raw eggs, dairy that hasn't been pasteurized. And that was kind of the secret of the Yamnaya people. They were a huge a hugely successful culture of herder gatherers that um, they rode around on horses that they, you know, that's how they got all over the place. The horses grazed on grass and they milked the horses uh, and they, they lived on milk. Like half of their diet was milk. Then the other half was meat. And that was, the, maybe that was horse milk. Portion. Uh, yes. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I know. It's really interesting. And these guys were total like kick-ass tough guys, right? I mean, they, they took over Europe and uh, something about something like 90% of all Europeans have Yamnaya DNA in, in their chromosomes. Is, isn't that amazing? Like it's this small little part of Europe um, that it's, it's called the Eurasian steppe. And it's, so it's like kind of like the, the border between Asia and Europe. Um, and it, it stretches for 5,000 miles east to west. I guess it's not little, it's really kind of huge, but it's a small segment of the Eurasian continent. Um, and it stretches for 5,000 miles from like the Caucasus Mountains, somewhere around there, I think on the east side, all the way to, uh, I think the, all the way to the coast on the on the west. You mean Kazakhstan, um, Uzbekistan, all that area of the world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All of those guys that, um, all the stands now that they're still their culture. I don't know if, you know, You've noticed, but back when we were, you know, at war with them, there were a lot of goats in the yeah. pictures and they're still like, they've sort of switched from ho- horses to goats, but it's still the same idea. You're still using pasture land and, and dairy products and nourishing your body and for, in a super fantastic way. So that's the first, I, that was uh, the the first pillar. Uh, we, we started with fresh food, right? Fresh dairy, non-pasteurized dairy. Um, and uh, that was how we got to that. So uh, the second pillar is fermented and sprouted food. And this is the, these, I looped those, looped those two things together. Fermentation and sprouting are two different processes that are similar in that they enhance the nutritional value of the food in order to preserve it. So uh, we preserve dairy by fermenting it, uh, the um, herder-gatherer cultures now living where the Yamnaya were are the Mongolians, and they ferment milk into something like kvass or, or something. I forget that they there's actually they probably have like I think they've got like 13 different forms of fermented milk. So it's like a, a liquid that's sort of like what we sell in our store in our stores nowadays uh, called kefir. Um, so they ferment the dairy and it keeps it from going off. Um, they, we also ferment it into cheese. Um, and so that's an example of fermented. There's lots of fermented products. Obviously, beer and wine have been fermented, uh, sauerkraut, um, pickles. These are fermented foods, uh, traditionally made pickles. 
most of the pickles in the store now are not fermented anymore. They're just um, stewed, like in, steeped in vinegar. But it's healthier if they're fermented because they have beneficial microbes that are the basis of our microbiome, uh, you know, as adults. So they give us the good bacteria so that we don't have to run around buying different supplements all the time to supplement our microbiome. We just ate fermented foods that still have living bacteria. And so the other half of this second pillar, the fermented and sprouted pillar is the sprouted pillar. And what that refers to is the strategy of enhancing the nutritional value of seeds like wheat or beans by soaking them and allowing them to germinate just a little bit. And that softens them so that we can then use them in food, right? We, because when we started farming, we did not have flour mills and we didn't have canning, right? So we, we stored our seeds in the form, mostly in the form of like different sorts of like wheats and different sorts of grains and cereal crops um, and beans, legumes. Uh, we stored them, you know, as dry as possible, but then so that we could get them um, up to eating consistency, right? Because they're like rock hard, you'd break a tooth on them <laughs> as is. You have to really soften them. Um, you soak them and then you start to germinate them and that softens them. And that was in a very, that was a very important strategy just in terms of um, cooking practicalities because there wasn't a lot of wood to go around, right? You'd you'd have to cook it for hours and hours, but this really cut down the cooking time if you softened it this way. But it also had nutritional benefits, tons of nutritional benefits. So just to touch on a few, it reduces some of the anti-nutrients that are naturally in seeds, and it enhances some of the, um, the uh, vitamins that are not in seeds, but become a plant, right? In the process of becoming a plant, vitamins are created. Plants are really amazing that way. They create um, all kinds of little chemical factories and they create lots of vitamins that we need to eat. And if we don't eat plants, we have to eat animals that ate them. Um, so that's the second pillar, the fer fermented and sprouted pillar. The third pillar is a, something I call meat on the bone. And this refers to that connective tissue stuff that we started this conversation with, um, on the bone, meaning like you're including all the stuff that connects the meat to the bone, the connective tissue, the ligaments and the joints. You don't have to just chew on it and gnaw on it like a, you know, like an animal, but you take it off the, you take it off the bone. I mean, you can do that. That's fine. <laughs> if you're into that and if you're into the carnivore diet. Um, but most people, uh, you know, eat the meat separate and then save those bones and boil them for a while in water and make gravies or soups or sauces or stews. A lot of early primitive peoples uh, cooked by hanging up some sort of pot over the stove, filling it with water and putting meat in there, like the joints of the animals or the ribs of it too, you know, everything, all of it with root vegetables and stuff and water and boiling it all away together and that would extract the, those special nutrients that support our connective tissue, that whole category that's right now missing from our diet. It doesn't even really have a name. Um, that's why I call it meat on the bone. 
But, um, you know, there are, we know the chemical compounds. So I can list a couple of these chemical po- compounds that you only get when you are eating broth is going to be stuff like glycosaminoglycans and proteoglycans and hyaluronic acid um, and glucosamine. And um, in, in collagen um, uh, hydrolysate, right? All of those things I just mentioned right now are also being sold separately as supplements. That's because we really do need them. We really can benefit from them. Those are some of the few supplements that I actually do recommend, but much better would just be to use this strategy, the meat on the bone, make gravy, make your own bone stock or buy it already made. Um, So that's the third pillar, the third nutritional strategy. And the fourth and the last one is um, kind of the most uh, cringeworthy (laughs) for people. The organs? Organs. Yes, it's organ meats. So, you know, people used to eat nose to tail. That used to be just like what you did. It wasn't a question of, you know, oh, there's this better cut or or lesser cut. All of it was useful. And in fact, the organ meats were the reward of the hunter in many cultures. They were the most prized and they are actually the most nutrient dense. So meat, the meat of an animal, the muscle tissue is really good for us, uh, but is mostly protein. All the different organs of an animal's body, including things like the eyes and the tongue, all have a different spectrum of nutrition and they have nutrients that muscle doesn't have. So if we're just living on muscle you know, getting just like the protein, high protein part of the animal, um, we're going to end up being deficient in one or more vitamins. And this is what I discovered when I was doing the research for the book, Deep Nutrition. Um, For the chapter where I talk about how to help a healthy child, I found when I did the research on how well nourished are we, that 100%, just about 100% of Americans are deficient in one or more basic vitamins and minerals. Um, and and that's largely because we've excluded these superfoods from our diets. These organ meats, like you know, liver and kidneys and heart and lungs and the eyeballs. Eyeballs are are a super fantastic source of vitamin A that the Eskimos in Alaska are the the proper. I don't, don't know what we're supposed to call them. I think it's like the Native American, the Native folks who live in, in Alaska. I think. Yeah, Inuit is, yeah, that's um, one of the tribes. Um, they knew that if you uh, had snow blindness, you could eat the fat from the back of the eyeball of a caribou or a seal or whatever, um, and it would cure your snow blindness within hours. Hmm. And I just bring this up like, like that's like mind-blowing how they figured that out. but they figured it out. And um, so organ meats, and that's just giving an example of like the, um, I think of a way to think of the organ meats as like a rainbow, right? Each one has a slightly different color from the whole rainbow of nutrition that an animal, animal's body represents, which is all that many cultures survived on. Many cultures were very close to pure carnivore. Um, 
not no i don't think any human culture was entirely pure carnivore but but they were very close and they got their nutrition from eating the entire animal and when you think about it just like on a common sense level that kind of makes sense because whatever an animal needs we probably need similar things because we have very similar body structures. We have eyes, we have kidneys, we have lungs, we have joints. You know, we are very similar to um, to the things that we eat. <laughs> I guess maybe it's a little creepy to think about it that way. But, um, but we are actually genetically very similar, literally to all mammals, um, right? So, all of our, all the caribou that people would eat or the cows that we now raise, um, we're very similar to them. And so their needs are our needs. If we just eat all of that, <laughs> we're doing really well nutrition wise. Um, and, and another example, because people might be thinking, but wait a, wait a second, vitamin C, don't you need to eat fruits and vegetables for that? Well, the answer is no. And this is another one of those things that amazes me about what native indigenous cultures were able to figure out. They figured out that after you kill an animal, um, you can go back into the, the deep part of the animal's abdomen and you'll find their kidneys back there. And the kidneys are surrounded at certain times of the year, the animals are very fat. And, so, and that was when they tended to hunt the animals, each animal like at its fattest. Um, and when you go back and, and get these fatty kidneys surrounded all in fat, on the very top of the kidneys, there's little balls of fat that are very special. Those are our, uh, those are the adrenal glands. And it turns out that the adrenal glands store vitamin C more than any other part of the body. And this was knowledge that the indigenous people had that, that um, you know, would be all but lost were it not for just a few people keeping it alive, a very few. Oral tradition. And yes. Uh, the people, who, you know, the very few people who really um, maintain that lifestyle. Um, and um, yeah, so that's the four pillars. Uh, the four pillars of the human diet. And just to recap real quick, it's fresh food, fermented and sprouted, meat on the bone and organ meat. And that that stuff um, formed the foundation of the diets of all successful human cultures around the world. And to, I, I should probably define what I mean by successful human cultures. Um, I mean that they raised healthy children and having children is was easy. Like they didn't um, need surgery or die frequently in childbirth. And so that, that you don't see that in any vegan or vegetarian um, cultures. There are none actually that, that for three generations have been purely vegan or, or to my knowledge, purely vegetarian and raised, um, you know, successful children successfully had an easy childbirths and their children were healthy and their children's teeth didn't need to be pulled. Um, so this gets us into a whole other topic that I love talking about, uh, about the teeth that, that I talk about in my book, Deep Nutrition. Um, do you want to talk about that? 
Let's do that because you mentioned that if you really are a healthy baby and there's a good pregnancy that you might not need, for example, in Western civilization, braces, for example. Right. And you won't even need to have teeth pulled. And of course, you probably won't have very many, if any, cavities either. But the idea that our diet affects our teeth, when I first heard this, it blew my mind because I was like, wait a second here. You mean the shape of our mouth, the shape of your mouth is determined by your diet and your parents' diet? And that information came to me through a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by a dentist named Weston A. Price. Oh, of course. And he was a true pioneer in the field of nutrition. I mean, literally, he was a pioneer. He actually went out into the frontier of human civilization at the time in the 1920s, where there was not yet civilization. He he studied, he traveled uh, to find people who were not yet uh, touched by civilization, by the influence of civilization on their diet. So he went to uh, 11 places all around the globe, all corners of the globe from deep in the heart of Europe and Switzerland in this mountain valley that was accessible like only certain times of the year. So they were very self-sufficient there. He went to Hawaii. He went to um, Alaska uh, or Northern Canada where it was, you know, indigenous, indigenous, very cold weathered people. Um, He went to Africa. And he went to a bunch of other places, but it was the full diversity of the human, um, like the human colonization of the world. And, and he was the one who opened my eyes to the link between diet and the way you look, the way we grow, the way our skeletons grow, because he found that the people that were living in these far-flung places all around the globe, they all had in common, they all had also this in common, right? They also like ate similar stuff too, or had the same strategies um, of, of getting food, but they also commonly had very broad uh, jaws, high cheekbones, deep set eyes, uh, prominent eyebrows, their ears were straight up and down, and their teeth were all perfectly straight. They didn't have to have anything pulled. Their wisdom teeth could grow in. Like mine, mine sure didn't. <laughs> I had to have mine pulled. That hurt. Um, and um, they didn't need glasses either. And, and so all of this opened my mind up to the idea that um what that our that our diets create this profound level of health that makes us not need some of these implements that are now so common to us. We don't even think of them as assistive devices, but they are like glasses. That's an assistive device. If you didn't have glasses, you wouldn't be able to get by 200 years ago. Not very well. Um, And braces, those are an assistive device. Because if you had crooked teeth, 
200 years ago, you would get cavities, you'd need, uh, you'd get infections that would affect your jaw, would get in your bloodstream, and you would die, right? So if our skeletal development didn't endow us with the best possible geometry that enabled space for all of our teeth and space for our eyes and space for our sinuses and space for our ear canals to drain properly, we would get infections and die, or we would die from some other thing because we couldn't see straight. Forgive me for for interjecting for a second. Did you said a few things that I want to unpack? When you say civilization, are you talking about, are you alluding to the industrial revolution where the industrial revolution took a footing? And second, when you come, when you talk about geometry, are you talking about the symmetry or even the Fibonacci sequence that you can see in nature, even in faces? Yes. And yes. Yes. So the, uh, the civilization, the civilizing influence that's been most detrimental to our health is the changes in food. Right. And it's brought a lot of changes in our food. And at the time that Price was, Weston E. Price was doing his research, um, he found that people were eating vegetable shortenings and um, sugars and flours and jams and jellies um, and, you know, canned meat that uh, had been cooked to death and the vitamins were cooked out of it. So, so those things were um, making people sick was what he concluded. And the uh, the people that were able to avoid those foods were the people that stuck with their traditions. But it was more than just avoiding those foods. It was uh, a whole intense indoctrination in how to make your food the healthiest possible to extract every last drop of nutrition from your ecosystem, starting from fortifying, fortifying the soil. And when you do this, that is how you build these incredibly healthy people that are geometrically built so that everything fits and everything works better. One of the things that is part and parcel of people like me who have a lot of connective tissue problems, like a lot of them, like I didn't just have shin splints, I had like every joint. a problem in my body at one point or another is the structure. And the, the, the structure of my body deviates from this ideal geometry enough that it stresses my joints. And I have abnormal forces that, um, develop that wear things out faster, or, you know, just that cause inflammation and cause problems. And so, um, that gets to like the, the just profound importance of, not just kind of not eating toxic foods, but also being really obsessive about nutrition because that is what our ancestors did. And and that's how we became healthy. That's how we built huge brains um, in in a very short time span, right? Our ancestors... Uh, something like th- three million years before us had brains that were like the size of a couple walnuts. And our brains now are on average two and a half pounds. So I don't know how many walnuts, that's a lot of walnuts. Um, and we did that by being being like 
obsessed with food, right? That's really the other way of putting it. We, when we were hunter gatherers, we were obsessed with food because we spent so much time trying to make better hunting weapons, right? And trying to make what um, cooking uh, implements. We figured out how to like uh, preserve our meat, how to make it tasty. We figured out how to cook it. Uh, we figured out how to smoke it. Smoking is an extremely ancient cooking technique. It may date back more than a million years. Um, and it preserved food too, uh, which is very important because if you were taking down something big like a woolly mammoth, when our, you know, the her earliest hominids were eating, you know, we ate them to extinction. We were eating massive prey. And so we needed to preserve it. So we were obsessed with food and we were, by being obsessed with food, we were obsessed with nutrition, really. And we need to carry that forward to be healthy. And that's what Weston Price was tapping into when he traveled all around the world to those 11 far-flung civilization-free cultures that were eating foods that their ancestors had been eating for thousands and thousands of years using ancient traditional techniques that create food that was far more nutritious than the food that we create today. And even that we created back in his time, you know, before our food supply basically was turned into almost completely junk food. Um, back in back in his time, you know, there was a lot of good stuff still. But even so, comparing like to like, there the cheese in Switzerland had something like 10 to 50 times more vitamins and minerals than the cheese on the store where he lived in Ohio. Um and the same for like foods like barley and in the crops that people grew it was much more nutrient intense because people were obsessed with food and obsessed with making healthy food. And they didn't like think about it in a negative way. It was just like, this is what we do. We love this food. Um, we love doing this stuff. It's part of the daily labors, uh, you know, you know, they're, they're hard, but um, in the end, uh, you know, it's putting us in touch with our environment. It's putting us in touch with nature and it's making us healthy. It's put keeping us in touch with the source of health, which is nature and which is our genetic lineage. So, you know, it's it's a whole package of health practices that that we just abandoned wholesale over the past hundred years. And that's why our health is falling apart. But when you say that cheese, for example, that has more nutrients in Switzerland. It's not the cheese, it's not the cow. Wouldn't it be the soil? For example, here in the United States, they, again, I, I keep sounding like a broken record, the Industrial Revolution. It, it's devoid of sulfur. It's devoid of a lot of nutrients. And is this why we crave so much? And this is why people recur to fast food, because they cannot find the nutrients in the food that they eat every day? It starts with the soil, exactly. And all of the um, indigenous cultures, they know this, right? Uh, they, like the Native Americans knew knew this and they know it now. And all of uh, the folks that Price visited, they spent a lot of time fortifying the soil in a variety of ways. Like they would recycle animal waste. They would recycle ashes. Um, they would, you know, special processes were all built in in order to keep that soil healthy and to keep the plants that they they grew healthy 
and to ensure that the animals that they fed would be as healthy as possible. I mean, they went to all kinds of lengths and measures to 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 do this. And the, the strategies were a little bit different depending whether you were farming and settled or hunting and gathering and always on the move or herding and gathering and you know going back and forth on a seasonal basis. Um so the strategies were a little bit different but it, it they all understood the concept of health begins in the earth. Even even hunter gatherers they understood that. Um, in fact, interestingly, like um, the Maasai who are herder gatherers, they see it as a t- a sin to disrupt the soil by tilling it. So, um, you know, they have, they've got a lot of uh, food related traditions and proscriptions against farming because they see that as a sin. And that is just like their way. It's a sin against their, their God. Nagai, I don't know how to pronounce that, N-G-A-I. But God says, don't till the soil, that's bad. And so again, though, like you're seeing the reflection of just the respect of the earth and the dirt, uh, the the soil. It's not the same as dirt, right? (laughs) Because that is where it all comes from. It all comes from the mother earth, the planet. That is our third parent. (laughs) In addition to our mother and our father, we rely, uh, we, we depend, we get our genes from our mother and our father, but we nourish those genes from our third parent, the, the planet, Mother Earth. We have to take a one and only break, but I'm thinking of epigenetics, a, a conversation that I had with that uh, Dr. Joel Wallach many years ago, and also Dr. David Palmater. One thing that I never knew was that 90% of their serotonin is produced in the microbiome, only 10% in the brain. And it makes me wonder if that is why we have so much depression, especially with our youth. But here's one thing I want to say before we take the break. Literally, the meat of things that I want to discuss when we come back. You say, if you think the wealthy members of the upper class would even touch the foods most Americans eat daily, the foods relentlessly touted as healthy, you'd be mistaken. No, the most privileged among us eat very much the way their great-great-great-grandparents did. And quote, if you and I, Dr. Kate, were given a pass to enter, say, the, the White House or Buckingham Palace to see what guests eat when there's a special dinner taking place, what would we see? And those are what we could be, cons- you know, could be considered sinfully rich f- foods. The government tells us their food pyramid forbids us regular folk from eating anything of the kind. What is going on here? Why are they telling us one thing but are doing the exact opposite? We'll get your answer, Dr. Kate, on the other side. How can people buy Deep Nutrition, your book? And you have other books as well. Uh, Yes, go to my website, drkate.com, D-R-C-A-T-E.com. And uh, I have all the information about my books on the website, where you can buy them, which is just about everywhere. You can go to Amazon, you can go to um, any bookstore online. And um, please do, because it will change your life. I'm not hearing anything again. And once we come back, we have another hour with Dr. Kate. And I don't do that many health shows, but when I do, I try to find the best of the best. And tonight, I think we've done that with Dr. Kate. Dr. Kate, one more hour to come. This is Mel Hustlerick, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. 
Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas, because you don't want to believe, you want to know.